patient-centeredness is at the heart of everything effective in improvement in, in many ways. First, in, in the very definition of quality itself. What, what is quality? Quality is meeting a need, the need you intend to meet. And we are orienting, we ought to be orienting healthcare around, as Maureen Visignano, our colleague, says, what matters to the patient, what matters to them. So, so the very definition of aim is related to the, to the understanding of what the true needs of the person are. We achieve quality when our work matches the need. It's unquality, it's defect when our work does not match the need. So the patients and family and community is right there at the center of the definition of our aims. This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about frame of mind. How can art bring us hope, joy, and a sense of wellness? It makes us feel connected. It makes us feel loved. Your whole soul opens up. Art saved my life and kept me out of trouble, kept me on the right path. We're tapping into the minds of people who have deeply connected with art in their own lives to find out how art can be a tool for well-being. Join us in listening to their stories on Frame of Mind, an art and wellness podcast from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listeners. Thank you for joining. And today's episode hits on all three buckets of the Visible Voices podcast. That's healthcare, equity, and current trends. Now, the episode also covers important topics such as patient safety, human-centered design, health design, and quality. My two guests, Dr. Don Berwick is President Emeritus and Senior Fellow at IHI. He's formerly Administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services under President Barack Obama. By training, he's a pediatrician, and to that end, he's served on the faculties of Harvard Med School and Harvard School of Public Health, and on the staffs of Boston Children's Hospital, Massachusetts General Hospital, and the Brigham, or the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Interestingly, in 2005, he was appointed Honorary Knight commander of the British Empire by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth. And you're wondering to yourself, self, did Risa ask about this? And of course, listeners, yes, I asked about this. You will hear the story. My second guest is a friend for over 20 years. Dr. Nana Tumdanso is Senior Vice President Global at IHI. She leads global strategy, client development, and top-line revenue responsibilities. So previously, she was the Managing Director for Health at the Rockefeller Foundation. She's also worked at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. She's an adjunct assistant professor in the Department of Maternal and Child Health at the Gillings School of Global Public Health at the University of Carolina, North Carolina, that is, Chapel Hill. I found a great quote where Nana describes when she first really became ahad by IHI, and this is actually her second time working for IHI. This is a quote. I had known about IHI for some time. In 2006, I heard Don Berwick and Joe McKinnon speak at a conference in Atlanta, convened by my former organization, the Task Force for Global Health. They described IHI's 100,000 Lives campaign, which was underway at the time, and it was very compelling. IHI caught my imagination, but I didn't know about its work in Africa. Then I heard about the Ghana opportunity with Project Fives Alive, and I was really intrigued. So I applied, interviewed, and the rest, as they say, is history. In the conversation, Don joins from Boston, or the Boston area. And Nana, she joins from Accra, Ghana. Let's go. 
one of the things I wanted to focus on today is IHI and safety and quality assurance. Don, when did you first become interested in safety, patient safety? And could you give us a little bit of background of the founding of IHI? When I was um, full-time at Harvard uh, Medical School and School of Public Health, my interest was um, decision theory and cost-effectiveness analysis. And that led me to be invited to be the head of quality and research at an HMO in Boston, the Harvard Community Health Plan, where I also saw patients. Um, and uh, I didn't know what I was doing. I was using uh, what I now recognize as kind of um, legacy methods of looking at quality of care. Uh, I didn't even know I was interested in it. I just had to do it. But it was it turned out to be very um, frustrating. Uh, I kept measuring and reporting and measuring and reporting on patient satisfaction and waiting times and uh, uh, complication rates and nothing changed. Uh, and I, so I, I tried to quit. The chief executive at that time um, suggested instead that I look at other industries and that began my journey. This is sort of the early, mid 1980s. So I began visiting NASA, airlines, uh, uh, hotels, uh, manufacturing companies, and quickly stumbled on the modern approaches to quality and improvement. Uh, they're highly scientific, much more satisfying than the <clears throat> measure and pound the table methods that I'd been really taught. Um, and uh, I began to see that they could help in healthcare. I joined a group of friends. We began meeting regularly and did a little experiment with 20 hospitals, which was very encouraging. And that all culminated in uh, in the formation, the foundation of a new uh, nonprofit, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, in, in 1991. Um, and it's just been upward and onward from, from then on. These methods really work. They really help. I also was deeply involved in research on healthcare performance, both academically and with the National Academy of Medicine, formerly Institute of Medicine, and uh, became aware of how rich the data were on showing how many things were wrong in healthcare. Among the things that are wrong are that we injure people in our care. We don't intend to. That's a consequence of the way our systems are designed. Uh, and so safety became one of the dimensions of quality and improvement that I got um, I got focused on and interested in. Um, IHI became global in 1996, and so that work has continued um, around the, around the planet. Uh, and uh, IHI has grown from a tiny little office of three people now to an international organization that um, that I'm just thrilled to be watching and, and trying to help. Yeah. Had you had any personal experiences with adverse outcomes or patient safety not turning out the way it optimally could have? Oh, yeah. I mean, all, all physicians, all nurses, all clinicians uh, daily encounter frustrations in their work. And I think complications with patients that they darn well know aren't necessary. Uh, we can see the hazards. We just don't without this without the scientific improvement methods. We don't have anything to do about it. Uh, I had personal experiences. My wife got extremely ill in the mid 1990s. Uh, a mysterious illness that uh, was uh, life-threatening, and as a, as a as a family member, a carer with her, um, a, not a day passed without uh, a significant uh, error in her care and complications that should not have occurred. And unfortunately, that's been repeated for both me and members of my family, my wife. Uh, I think it's a common experience. In fact, I tend to doubt that there's anybody who's encountered the healthcare system who hasn't experienced the consequences of um, error and, and, and injuries. So this is personal. Completely agree. And uh, Nana, I'm going to have you share something similar. I mean, 
it's bananas uh, what we see and what we know. And I think often as trained clinicians, we actually see even more and many of us are called to help others because we know that it's very difficult to navigate this healthcare system, even when it's working well and even when errors aren't being made. So I appreciate that candor. And I wanted to use the word candor right there. Uh, Nana, when did you first become interested in safety and any personal experiences? Yeah, um, I'm not even sure I knew the word safety as a technical concept in healthcare, but um, in the mid-1990s, my grandfather, uh, who had been blind for about, I think at that point, close to 40, 40 years, um, died from a fall in a hospital. You know, he was a healthy 80-something-year-old man with absolutely no chronic diseases, you know, normal weight, and probably could have lived for another, who knows, whatever his natural life expectancy would have been. And he had community-acquired pneumonia, was admitted to the hospital, and with his blindness and not knowing where he was, he needed, he needed a little bit more attention. Unfortunately, he fell out of bed twice and had a head injury and died from his head injury. And, you know, this was probably like day two or three of his pneumonia treatment. And it was so heartbreaking. And the the sort of shrugging of the shoulders that happened was, was just even more devastating for the family because it almost appeared that because of his age or because he was blind, he was less of a human you know, less of a concern. And, and I, was, I was in medical school at the time. And actually, my mom didn't tell me the cause of death because she knew I would be furious. I'd be devastated. I would kick up a big fuss in the hospital. It was only about a year or two later that I, I learned it was the head injury, not the pneumonia, that killed him. Um, my grandmother died from a preventable decubitus ulcer, um, you know, again, in her 80s. But we don't judge people's... Uh, ability to live based on their age. I think, again, it was neglect and the decoctus also um, just got worse and um, died from that. So and that was also at a formative stage of my of my career. I was um, a resident at that time. I think it was 2001. So I was just finishing my preventive medicine residency. So those were formative years for me, formative experiences for me because of the preventable nature of, of what happened. Um, and of course, I mentioned I'm a preventive medicine physician. So this was personal and professional, right? It was just like, why did it have to happen? On the flip side, I have to tell you, Risa, I have had my own medical experiences where I've had a positive experience. And I wonder how much of that is because of my profession. You know, you go into a health facility, you describe whatever your problem is. And based on even the way you tell the history, the person interviewing knows you're a health professional. They say, oh, are you a nurse or a doctor? Even when you're trying to be be below the radar to see how the system really works for regular people, they don't let you be a regular person because as soon as you start speaking, you sound like, oh, you're telling the story the way they would want to hear it. So I had a terrible fall um, in the gym uh, many years ago. I was at Emory University at the time, and I, I showed up with a huge gash on my chin, and I got such excellent care, excellent care. And I was grateful, but I also wondered whether it's because I was a physician and I was a colleague. And, you know, I used to be, I remember, Risa, I started my training in emergency medicine before going to preventive medicine. So I know the person who was working on me kind of, um, what's the word, related to me in in more ways than probably the average patient. So I, I think I got I got very special care. And I my, the reason I'm telling you the story is that I aspire 
for every patient to get that special care. We shouldn't be lucky just because we're in the profession or our family members are in the profession. One of the reasons why I'm so glad to have both of you in conversation is really to talk more and do a bit of a deeper dive into IHI. And, you know, based on recent uh, YouTube videos and readings, blog posts that you've written, um, there is a real health design thinking framework that I see, sort of a let's uh, figure out the question, let's figure out the problem, uh, brainstorm, iterate, prototype, redo, redo. You know, at the end of the day, it's patient-centered and human-centered so that we have the best optimal possible outcome, knowing that it won't be perfect, but it'll be better of an outcome or a procedure or a device or a workflow or an education initiative because we've done that iterative process. Uh, Nana, I've, I've read in some of your pieces that you actually feel at the end of the day that it's the execution piece. And I'm wondering if you still feel that it's the execution and um, how did your experience with Maza Transport, feel free to tell the audience about Maza, um, inform that focus on execution? Um, yeah, thank you, Risa. You know, one of the first concepts that I learned at IHI, and Don is going to know exactly what I'm about to say, is this very simple uh, triangle that we all learned very early on. It's, um, it's, it was promoted by our colleague, um, uh, Tom Nolan. Um, it's really about will, the will to do, the, to do the change, to transform, great ideas about what the future looks like. You have an aspiration about what your system's future looks like. So will, ideas, and then execution. All three are important. And all three feed on each other. And depending on the context in which you're working, execution is going to be the Achilles heel. Because without execution of those great ideas, you never get to see what that future looks like. You end up spinning your wheels or the status quo. Um, the status quo prevails. The status quo um, is a phrase I learned along the way. So the school has a hold on us. It's so easy for all of us as human beings, healthcare providers in, included, to, to do the status quo, it's cognitively a lot easier. If we're going to get out of our cognitive comfort zone and do something new, test something new, we have to act on it and we have to learn from it and keep coming back to it and improve upon it as we go along. So, yes, I'm a big believer in execution. I, I do value all components of that triangle. Um, because I'm a practitioner and because I've been in the field, I've worked, as you said, I've worked at local level, with Maza, and then, of course, the work I did with Project Fives Alive when I was working with IHI the first time around. We were working at local, national, district level. I've worked internationally. The, the difference is being able to do the thing, whatever the thing is that we want to do differently. Um, do it, study it, understand how it affects your system as a whole, and then keep building on it towards that future that we're all working for, an improved health system. So execution is key. Um, I don't know the origin of how Tom came up with that framework, but maybe Don can add on that because I, I, I have that framework in my head every time I advise people on how to work towards an improved system that they're aspiring to. Yeah, so Don, speak about execution and also why the human-centered, the patient-centered is key to this process. Patient-centeredness is at the heart of everything effective in improvement. In, in many ways, first in, in the very definition of quality itself. What, what is quality? Quality is meeting a need. The 
need you intend to meet. And we are orienting, we ought to be orienting healthcare around, as Maureen Bisignano, our colleague, says, what matters to the patient, what matters to them. So, so the very definition of aim is related to the to the understanding of what the true needs of the person are. Quality, it, it, we achieve quality when our work matches the need. It's unquality, it's defect when our work does not match the need. So the patients and family and community is right there at the center of the definition of our aims. Uh, also, uh, they're inevitably part of the system of work. Uh, you know, you, healthcare is not like a toaster that you make in a factory and you plug into somebody's wall. Healthcare is co-produced. It's something that's done together uh, when we do it right. Um, and the old way that you know, I'm the doctor, sit down, keep quiet, I'll do it. It, it just that doesn't match the, what we now know about how health and care are produced. So the, the patient and family and community, they're right there with us. They're part, they're, they're pure, they're real partners. Uh, they ought to be the judges of quality that, that we want to know how we're doing. Ask the people we're trying to help. That, that it's, it's in their eyes that, that, that quality lies. Um, so the patient Patient-centeredness, is it, it infuses everything. Person-centeredness should infuse everything we do. The will, ideas, and execution triad that Tom Nolan, who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, he was the, probably the greatest mentor I ever had, and IHI certainly fundamental to IHI's direction. Uh, Tom was asking the question, what does it take? What does it take to, to have change in a, large, in a large, complex system? And he said, there are three assets, will, which is a dissatisfaction with the status quo and an understanding of what might be possible in the future, uh, an attractive future. You, you don't you don't change by accident. You change intentionally. Uh, ideas are the alternatives to the status quo. If you keep, if, as Nana said, if you keep stressing the status quo, you're going to get what you already gotten. Maybe you can sometimes squeeze a little water out of a stone, but that's not a very efficient process. You have to actually redesign, as you said, research, it's redesign, it's finding the new process and specifically not blaming the worker. The, the doctors, nurses, people in healthcare, they are doing their best in the system we have, we have built around them. We want them to be able to do better. We need a new system. And for that, we, say we have ideas. We get them from all over the world, from other industries, from each other, from the workforce itself, from science, from experimentation, will, ideas, but execution is taking those ideas with the will and actually making changes. And Nana knows better than most people in the world what's that like. In Pfizer Live, we had the will. It's 115 kids per thousand dying in Ghana before age five. Not okay. And uh, the, the will to reduce child mortality was crucial. Ideas, that was the scientific work. Why, do, why are they dying? What's going on? What are the system defects in the way of meeting their needs. I remember visiting Northern Ghana with Nana with a kid who died of malaria, which is why did that kid die? What's going on in the structure of the system that allows a child to die of a curable illness? But then execution is the day-to-day -day work of helping the staff and the leaders and the patients and the families adopt, test, and, and, um, and uh, solidify new and, new and better processes. Uh, it's a very powerful framework. Um, and uh, a lot of IHI's work, a lot of Nana's work and leadership are around that execution piece. How do you help people get involved in making changes together? So good. And tying, tying together what you just shared, Don, I did a little bit of a deep dive study of Don Berwick. And uh, IHI did a series of 
it was a conversation that was broken up into pieces and basically reflecting on you, your work, your professional life, a little bit of your personal life. And you spoke on, I pulled out some phrases, storytelling. Uh, when you're feeling self-righteous, you're about to make a mistake and never worry alone. Can you share how maybe these, and of course now I'm like bringing things up. You're like, wait a minute, when did I say that? What was I talking about? But how those tie into what you just shared with actually this process of patient safety and, and improvement. Uh, well, the, there are aspects of the pursuit of improvement around will ideas and execution that are technical. Uh, system sciences are deeply at the heart of modern approaches to improvement. So are statistics. So is, is a sense of, um, epistemology. How do you learn in time? These are technical approaches, which when you hand them to people and help them use them in concert with each other, they do better. Uh, they can do better. They can do what they've always wanted to do, which is to do better. Um, but there are cultural aspects too: the belief systems, uh, the way we work with each other, the kind of um, habits of interaction, much more subtle than the technologies. They matter a lot. So the, these things that you quoted, which often have come to me through from other people. They're not, they're not uh, by any means always my quotes. Uh, Never worry alone. That Maureen Bisignano taught me that. Um, we live in a world with lots of problems, but when we combine our energies together to, to tackle problems, we just do more together than we can separately. And creating platforms for that kind of interaction are, are absolutely uh, crucial. What, what One I love that came from Sister Mary Jean Ryan was... Um, when you come to a wall too too tall to climb, throw your hat over the wall and then go get your hat. That that idea that it's there are possibilities. And once we get together and imagine what really could be new, zero. How about zero pressure ulcers instead of the one that took the life of a loved one, a uh, nana's loved one? Uh, what what about zero um, uh, failures to execute uh, proper care of congestive heart failure? What 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 about um, complete patient-centeredness where everything that matters to the patient is what we attend to. What about healthcare costs down? What about stop, stopping the waste so we can use that money for elsewhere? When we're trapped in the status quo, we can't see the other side of the wall. Uh, so this uh, culture of aspiration linked to method is, is, is really crucial. Um, if you, if you were to come to IHI, you'd hear and see lots of these, uh, one-liners that I think are attempts to capture the culture that we really want, the culture of constant change, improvement, and joy. Amazing. Nana, and professionally, uh, you focused a piece of your work on maternal, newborn, and child health. And um, I, I really would love you to share a little bit about Maza and uh, why Maza in Ghana. And also, um, I read a piece and saw you speak on the mobile phone revolution. Now, this is a few years ago, but it all ties into your work and even to your position now, I think. Uh, share with the audience. Yeah. So uh, Maza came about uh, six, seven years ago. Yeah, seven years ago, 2015. And uh, it was a time when I was... Um, I had been working in maternal, newborn, and child health at that point for almost 10 years. And I, I, I was no longer with IHI at the time. I had worked in Ghana, in northern Ghana, and I knew from my work with IHI in northern Ghana that the quality of care in health facilities was improving. 
I also knew that there's been decades of investments in uh, public education, family education, um, community health, encouraging people to use uh, healthcare services, especially when women are in labor, when children are sick. What was missing, again, coming from an IHI perspective, coming from a systems, systems thinking view, what was missing at the time, I felt like, was the link between the communities and families who genuinely wanted to seek health care and the health facilities that may have been 5 or 10, 20 kilometers away. The, the transportation system, basic transportation system, to get people to care when they need it didn't exist. Yet we often found that health providers blamed the patients for showing up late in an emergency. Um, and, you know, then we scrambled to save them based on the best clinical skills we have, but oftentimes we're not successful because they came too late. And this is particularly true for newborns that have a little bit more vulnerability than, you know, older children and certainly for women in labor as well. So Maza came about to set up an urgent transportation uh, system at the local level, closer to the family, so they didn't have to call a central system get an ambulance from 10 kilometers away, which might take, you know, who knows, an hour to arrive, another hour to get them back to the hospital. So that's what we tried to do. We had local drivers at the community level who were available with tri-wheeled vehicles that could manage the terrain of those rural areas and get the people to healthcare facilities on time. We worked on that, myself and the team uh, worked on that for about four years in two districts in Northern Ghana. And, um, you know, we learned a lot. One of the things that, going back to patient-centeredness or person-centeredness, we spent months and months talking to the families and communities in those districts, trying to understand what the challenges were with transportation, um, what they thought could work as a solution or a set of solutions for them. And we, we developed that as best as we could. And then we spent week after week after week with them, just hearing their experiences with, with, the, with their service and further suggestions for improvement. And I think a lot of that was actually influenced by my um, understanding of improvement methods and the fact that you're actually never really done. Because better, there's always something better, right? So it's an, what we had was an improvement on the previous year, but based on the feedback from the mothers and the families that were using our service, we kept on improving, we kept on iterating. And actually going back to the mobile phone question you asked, Risa, uh, we learned that even though there were phones available at the household level, most of the phones belonged to the men, not the women who were pregnant women, that not the patients. The family had a phone, but the mother herself, the pregnant woman, didn't have a phone. So we had to redesign our interventions accordingly to address the fact that the person who, who's, who needed the information to act on at the time of the emergency was not the person with the phone. Um, and we didn't really understand that until we got into the community. So going back to um, Don's point about person-centeredness, regardless of where you are in the world, you have to listen. You have to learn what matters to people the most um, and design accordingly. One of the things we learned from the families was that uh, at, about two years into this was that we had communicated so clearly to them that when labor starts, they should start moving towards the health facility, not wait until they had an emergency, maybe obstructed labor or postpartum hemorrhage. So they had started going to the facility very early. 
So they didn't need our services anymore. This was completely counterintuitive to us because we were providing a transportation service to get them there. In their minds, the transportation service was more of an ambulance, more of an emergency service. When they went in an emergency, they preferred to walk or go by motorbike. And we would never have known if we didn't ask and talk to them on a regular basis and keep learning, keep processing. So it was an incredible experience. Um, yeah, incredible experience. We made a difference. We also learned a lot um, about human-centered design. We learned a lot about the importance of listening, learning from the data and adjusting as you go along. It's a health design case report. It's beautiful. Uh, it's really fantastic. And I want to pivot a little bit um, and shine a light on Don. And Don, I don't know if you knew this, but in 2005, he was appointed an honorary knight commander of the British Empire. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about that story, Don? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, IHI was founded uh, as a as a North American organization, the U.S. and Canada was their focus. But um, about five or six years in, um, I got some invitations to begin to be involved in other countries, Norway, Sweden, uh, Denmark, um, Japan, and uh, the U.K. The National Health Service in England was undergoing uh, changes. And when uh, Tony Blair was elected in the late 1990s, uh, the issue in the campaign, uh, the, the pivotal issue was waiting times in the National Health Service uh, in, in the UK, uh, which were unacceptable to the public. And so Blair focused a lot of his first term energies on improvement of the National Health Service uh, because of the way that's organized, that could happen. There could be a decision to focus on improvement and he established something called um, the Modernization Agency and the Modernization Board. Uh, and for various reasons, I had already met several of the leaders there. They asked me to serve as the only non-Brit on the um, Modernization Board. Modernization Board's assignment was to begin to support infrastructure in the National Health Service in, in England, uh, Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, uh, to solve some of the problems that were bugging the public, waiting times, uh, problems in uh, access to specialty consultations, uh, somewhat poorer performance in cardiac, orthopedic, cancer care than in the uh, the rest of uh, Europe. Uh, and so uh, uh, um, sub-organizations were set up for collaborative work on all of these projects. And I got deeply involved with that. I took the methods that Nana and I are talking about, along with colleagues at IHI. We went many, many times and still do to the UK to help the National Health Service and the leadership there learn uh, modern approaches to improvement, which they were able to implement uh, beautifully. Um, a um, hero of ours, uh, Sir John Oldham, a GP in um, Derbyshire, learned uh, modern approaches to queuing theory and waiting times and knocked the socks off waiting times in GP practices. So over about a four or five year period, period that modernization agency and modernization board uh, made um, really phenomenal progress on weights, on, on uh, access to specialists, on outcomes in heart, in heart disease and cancer and orthopedics, uh, which were well documented. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, it's, it's always it's always a team. It's always a group effort. And I can name you literally hundreds of people who were involved in that success. But uh, they chose to um, to recognize my contribution by um, by this honorary knighthood. Uh, so it was cool. I mean, 
I still have my the medallions and the paraphernalia that come when that happens. Uh, and it's, it was a great, great honor. But I know uh, very well that what they were recognizing was the work of so many people who, who, who began to realize there was a better way to achieve improvement. Thanks for sharing that. Um, it's another case report in design, actually, that you just shared. In yeah, let me let me say you're you're exactly right because what the, the the reason that worked was because they established an infrastructure capable of supporting change, which is entirely different from sending out a memo saying I don't like these waiting times, fix them, or something bad's going to happen to you. They they chose they chose the right path, at least at that time, uh, and the results speak for themselves. One hundred percent, and you really capture what I would my next question for each of you, which is leadership. Each of you have leadership titles. You've held leadership positions in different organizations, different task forces, different committees. And, you know, I would love to hear your thoughts on leadership, how you see leadership, and perhaps even share a time that you see, you know, I failed. I failed as a leader, and this is what I learned. Uh, Nana, why don't you take it first, then Don. Let Don answer the question about his style, and then I'll think about a failure that I've learned and what I, what I, learned, what I got out of that experience. I wish it were not the case that improvement was dependent on leadership. It would be easier if not, but it is. It's highly dependent. And so in the work that IHI does and that Nana and I try to progress, you often arrive at the understanding that if the executive and the prestigious senior clinicians or the board of trustees or directors of the Ministry of Health are not focused on will ideas and execution, but they're not using the method. You, it's extremely difficult to make uh, substantial progress despite the goodwill of the workforce. So it's, it's, it's absolutely crucial. Um, the kind of leadership that works, well, there's a technical answer, which is W. Edwards Deming, who's one of the great scholars of this field back in the, uh, in the 20th century. Deming wrote um, a lot, but he also wrote this um, manifesto of 14, point, 14 points for top leaders. In which he was, he actually goes through a list of attitude, attitudinal and uh, investment oriented thinking about leaders, like constancy of purpose for improvement, uh, abandoning uh, pay for performance, uh, um, moving toward uh, a strong focus on customers. Um, so that there's some tech that you can study that, and I think it's very powerful stuff. For me, I think. Um, a core concept is has to do with uh, curiosity and maybe humility that you just, because we're all in this learning journey, Nana didn't know how Maza would work or not. She was the leader, but she didn't know it all. And if she approached it saying, darn it, these people won't do what I already know they should do. It's not going to work. Uh, she's a good enough leader to say the least, to know that the wisdom is in the workforce. The wisdom is in the community and you have to be, authentically curious about what you need to know that you don't know. Uh, so that that's that's one of the skills. I think mastering the sciences of improvement is also important. In terms of mistakes, I mean, I could fill a book of <laughs> mistakes I've made as a leader. Um, one or two that occurred to me, I remember uh, early in my um, leadership at IHI, I encountered a situation where one of my deputies uh, was being accused of some pretty bad behaviors. And uh, I, um, I kind of uh, worked around that. I uh, did some inquiry and 
And eventually she came to me and she said, why didn't you talk to me? And I always remember that moment, which is, whoa, why didn't I talk to her? You know, why was I too scared to have the adult to adult conversation that eventually, of course, cleared the clouds? You know, there was much deeper explanation. But that why don't you talk with me is a lesson I've, I've taken home. Um, I think most of the mistakes I've made as a leader have to do with communication. When I ran CMS, I ran Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services for President Obama. It was a time of extraordinary polarization between the Republicans and the Democrats. Uh, and although I'm partisan and I strongly believe in the progressive and Democrat, the progressive views more associated with the Democratic Party, I had colleagues on Capitol Hill that I should have gone to and sat down with over all of the barriers and just talked. Maybe nothing would have happened but possibly something good would have happened. And if I could go back and do that job again, it would have been uh, stepping over some of the fences that had been built around me and just gone into people's offices and presence and said, can you talk? So good. Nana, anything that came to mind you'd like to share? Yeah, yeah, I've been thinking about it. I think most of my, uh, the, the examples that come to mind the most uh, quickly are around people not surprisingly, and it's about hiring. I think one of the most important jobs that uh, leaders do is hiring and sometimes, unfortunately, firing, but I actually haven't had to fire that often. I think the the lesson, the, the big lesson I learned early on in my career, maybe 15, 16 years ago, is hiring based on resume only rather than uh, attitude. I've had a couple of people who have hired within the first month. Um, it was clear that the attitude, the, the, the cultural fit wasn't there to the organization or the attitude towards learning and improvement wasn't there, but on paper, they seemed to have what it took. And so I, I you know, over time I've improved my interviewing style, the types of questions I asked, the emphasis on, on attitude and achievements tangible achievements rather than hiring on, on resume alone. That's probably a big one. And um, I'm still working on it. The Risa wrap up. Before we get to that, here's a word about the Gritty Nurse podcast. Hi, my name is Amy and I am the co-host and co-founder of the Gritty Nurse podcast, an unfiltered discussion related to health and healthcare. On our podcast, we shy away from nothing, discussing hot topics in healthcare such as mental health, social justice, health equity, women's rights, and women's health, and nursing as a profession. So deep appreciation and thanks for Don and Nana for making the time to get together to join me in conversation. And I really, really um, appreciate all that IHI and these two individuals have done and are doing to encourage increase patient safety, the quality of patient care delivered. Their framework, their health design framework, which is ask a question or decide what your problem is, brainstorm, iterate, try to figure out, ask it with the end user, make it co-designed with the patient, with the human, with the person, person-centered development of solutions, of workflows, of care. Okay, audience, that's it for this week. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. 
Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, Risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.